this notion that we have that we are these atomized, isolated, individuated beings is part of the kind of illusion that we carry. I mean, you know, we are always already embedded in a social context. We always have been. So the idea of our radical separateness is really called into question by, I think, any serious engagement with mindfulness. And therefore, we are called to act in response to our embeddedness in the world. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today, I'm speaking with law professor, author, and mindfulness teacher, Rhonda McGee. Rhonda's work has focused on bringing contemplative approaches into both the practice of law, as well as the fight for racial justice. I spoke with Rhonda this past spring, and as I've engaged with this material, I'm really struck by how her work is all rooted in the truth of our interconnection. I love how this theme keeps showing up in different ways across these episodes. As usual, our conversation covers a lot of topics. She begins with her own path to contemplative practice from roots in the American South. And then we discuss her thoughts on the role of mindfulness in racial justice work. And related to that, she reflects on how we can balance equanimity with really wanting a certain outcome. Rhonda then discusses her work using contemplative approaches in law, and we get into challenging what's known as the adversarial model in law, this idea that there's one winner and one loser. We talk about balancing individual rights with the reality of a connected whole, and also restorative justice and something called collaborative divorce. We then get into a discussion of how racism harms us all including those in the dominant group, like white folks. And we also talk about the role of the body in all of this, how bias, fear, and also safety show up in the body, and how dominator culture cuts us off from our bodies. She also touches on ideas like racial capitalism, color insight versus color blindness, and the joy that comes from embracing our shared humanity. I think these ideas are so valuable and really important to engage with, particularly in this cultural moment, when, as Rhonda says, there's some new way of being human that's wanting to be born. I also love how this conversation offers yet another lens on the way that working with our own minds can change our lives and our world. If you'd like to learn more about Rhonda's work, you can find resources in the show notes, as well as a link to her recent book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's my pleasure to share with you Rhonda McGee. Well, I'm here with Rhonda McGee. Rhonda, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Wendy. It's good to be with you. So um, I'd love to start with a little bit of your personal background. I've heard you speak a number of times about your experiences growing up in the American South and how that's you know, shaped the trajectory of your work. Can you share a little bit of that for context? Yeah, I was born in um, a, a town called Kinston, North Carolina. And I was born in 1967. I just go ahead and out that year <laughs> so many years ago, <laughs> but I think it's important to just name that as, you know, as we think about the arc of time that I've been working with. And 1967, of course, was 
a really important year of the civil rights movement, um, the last year of Martin Luther King's life here on the earth. Um, and for me, you know, my family wasn't very involved, was not involved at all, actually, um, mm. in any conscious way that I knew uh, in all of that, because they were very, you know, poor to working class and just trying to survive and make ends meet, as we would say. But but where we were in North Carolina was, you know, very clearly a part of that American Southern, um, frankly, racist and patriarchal, like that, the sort of embedded hierarchies were very, very strong. And the legacies of that were very strong. So my grandmother, um, who, you know, participated in my upbringing quite a bit, um, had been born in 1906. And so by the time I came along was a young girl, she was an elder but she was still leaving the house every day to work in the home of a white family across town. Um, and as I have said more than once, you know, once you have your own house, you realize no one actually needs someone to come, you know, nine to five right. <laughs> for house cleaning, uh, so to speak. So just the way in which she was working in that home across town was, again, this kind of continuation of you know, some of the patterns of economic and mm -hmm. social exploitation that are associated with the legacies of white supremacy in, in the context of the United States. Um, and yet my grandmother grew up in a very traditional Black Southern Christian traditions. So she had been called to the ministry and had found her own kind of voice as a teacher Mm. Uh, interestingly, and certainly a kind of a community um, pastor, someone who was there to help support others. So as a little girl, I witnessed her getting up every day before dawn and doing this, engaging in a very disciplined practice of centering prayer and in mm. her own kind of study and reflection, contemplation on scripture. And for her, that was a, the ground of support that she leaned into to then be able to, to go out and do this very difficult work in the world where, mm. you know, she wasn't necessarily recognized as valuable, but she had this practice in this way of grounding herself and her own value, worth, purpose, um, values, and letting that support her through her day. So even though I was quite young watching her, um, I think that influenced me because I was able to later in my own life when I, you know, having had this different trajectory, this opportunity to go to school and to study and to go to law school and graduate school and do all these things that were denied, you know, people as recently as my own mother's generation. Hmm. Um, you know, I nevertheless found myself in need of some kind of grounding practice. And, and that image of my grandmother, I think, was still with me. Hmm. And so that actually was, I think, a very important entree for me uh, to opening to this idea of a regular centering. For me, what came to be a mindfulness-based practice. But I had that image, I think, of my grandmother as a way of knowing what might be of benefit to me, even hmm. though our lives were very different. Um, when the time came for me to, to search for additional support. 
Oh, that's great. Um, so that's the beginning of your contemplative path and, and interest. Can you draw that line a little further into how you became exposed to Buddhist ideas and more interested in the, the Buddhist traditions? Yeah. So very early on, we moved, my family moved from North Carolina to Virginia. And then I spent many, many years in Virginia and went to university there. And after graduating from law school and moving out to San Francisco, I, like, you know, so many young people starting out with, you know, a new job, a new apartment and a new city, there's a lot of new happening. <laughs> Plus, <laughs> I had just, you know, taken the bar and just been going through so much in the way of preparation for this new mm -hmm. life. And I really felt um, both excited and ready to, to start this new career in this new place, but also um, a little bit overwhelmed and a little bit um, aware that I had kind of been overformed for constant busyness. Mm -hmm. And I learned this really clearly because after taking the bar exam, when a lot of folks, especially those who have extra resources, will go on a post-bar trip or do some, you know, oh, do something yeah. to kind of relax in preparation, maybe give themselves three or four weeks or a month or so off before they start uh -huh. their job. I had um, that time because my job wasn't due to start for a couple of months. I didn't have the resources. And I was just in my apartment out here in California, like antsy to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unable to rest, relax. So I started um, exploring meditation. My partner at the time, um, still partner, his <laughs> family heritage is Indian um, from the Indian subcontinent. So there was a book on our bookshelves that I took down that belonged to him. And it's called the Bhagavad Gita for daily living. And so uh -huh. it was clearly, yeah, an Indian heritage introduction for me that I read about um, and found um, the description of of meditation in that to be very evocative and inviting. And um, so I ended up, like many people may do, trying to experiment on my own using the book. And that began kind of a long journey of, you know, experimenting in different ways and checking out different communities. Uh, and it eventually led to me seeing a way of um, integrating this with my work as a law professor, because I was, you know, at the same time exploring contemplative approaches to law and frankly, even spiritual approaches to law. Hmm. And I found this organization called, well, it became an organization, but it was a sitting group of law professors who were also interested in the same things. And it became this organization called the Project for the Integration of Spirituality, Law and Politics. Huh. And this one particular scholar, teacher, Peter Gable, was really influential in helping establish that little node of, of scholars and, and folks. And I would meet with them, you know, once a month, we'd be reading something and talking, you know, how these things are. <laughs> and it, it became clear to me and to all of us, that I, I was one of the ones in that group who kept wanting to integrate actual practice, not just talk about, uh -huh, not yeah. just the scholarly, you know, analysis of how, what this might do to expand our thinking about law and policy and politics, but I wanted to practice. And so someone hearing me in that group said, you know, I think you might want to join the sitting lawyers. <laughs> and I didn't know at that time that there was a group of meditating lawyers who were actually, it turns out, being supported and um, held and guided 
with resources um, through the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. Uh -huh. So this was a group of lawyers, um, a couple law professors, a judge or two based here in the Bay Area. And the lead teacher was Norman Fisher, former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. He runs mm -hmm. now this project called Everyday Zen. He's a prolific writer. And um, and so Norman is uh, was then and still is holding this community uh, no more than maybe 12 of us at a time of all these years. I started sitting with them in 2004 or five or so. And that was when I really had a community of practice focused on Buddhist teachings to really allow me to then um, kind of settle into that particular modality. And, and that, that really led to, to kind of the commitment I have to being really a lifelong student of you know the teachings of the Buddha and the practices um, that um, Buddhist practitioners and communities uh, over the millennia have lovingly, you know, experimented with, shared, drawn on, and offered. And so I feel very fortunate to now feel myself part of this you know tradition of Buddhist practitioner teacher scholars. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I want to come back uh, in a little bit to the way that you've integrated contemplative practice into your law work. Uh, but first, maybe we can speak a bit more broadly. Um, you've done a lot of your work around um, integrating mindfulness with racial justice and equity work. And I feel like, you know, maybe over the last 10 years, as mindfulness has really become popularized in the States, um, certainly in Western society in general, it's been often criticized as kind of this navel-gazing, self-focused um, opium of the elite, you know, just for privileged folks. Um, so we hear these critiques, and, and in many ways, those are valid. But I feel like your work really brings this into a much more engaged space. And there's a kind of a whole movement known as engaged Buddhism, mm -hmm. bringing this work more into real world impact. So can you share how the practice of mindfulness can help in the struggle for racial justice? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's a big topic. And yeah. yes, I could certainly, you know, share some of the yeah. ways I think about that. You know, I think, first of all, you allude to the criticism that we often hear about about mindfulness being, you know, overly centered on the individual and not mm -hmm. perhaps as often presented as a support for our engagement in the world, our social engagement, and frankly, the dynamics around power and the in the abuses of power that lead to what those of us in social justice work sometimes call surplus suffering, right? The extra suffering, mm. which any one of us might experience because of our mental habits and patterns, but the actual kind of physical material deprivations, exploitations, oppressions that, that flow from the way we've organized our societies, our communities, institutions in them. So, you know, I think part of it is just recognizing the ways that mindfulness in actual practice, in fact, and apparently according to early Buddhist scholars in actual early teachings, has always been about not just inner experience and, you know, building our own capacity to know our own minds and habits and patterns and to, to kind of um, 
be more skillful in terms of how we um, act in the world as a result of that. But really, that mindfulness has always been about external mindfulness as well. So not just the internal, but the external, like what, what actually might I be more aware of in my external environment as a result of these practices? And so this inner to outer mindfulness piece is something that I think we in the West haven't as often as we might, or to the degree that I think we should, frankly, um, highlighted. We have tended to, you know, as we do, um, packaged mindfulness in a very kind of saleable way, which Mm -hmm. is it can be your individual ticket to, you know, clarity of thought, productivity, and on and on and on. Well-being and happiness. Exactly, right? And it's not that it doesn't have those possible benefits. It's just that that isn't hardly, in my view, um, sufficient to really mm-hmm. describe what mindfulness at its origin and in fact, in actual practice um, may deliver us to, right? Mm-hmm. To me, mindfulness really is about how we relate to all aspects of our life. And of course, this, I, this notion that we have that we are these atomized, isolated, individuated beings mm is part of the the kind of illusion that we carry. I mean, you know, we are always already embedded in a social context. We always have been and we will be until we shuffle off our mortal coil (laughs) and into a different realm, so to speak. Um, And even then we're, you know, we're going to be a part of this environment and this natural world. So the idea of our, you know, radical separateness as hard-bounded individuals, skin-bounded individuals and egos is, is really called into question by, I think, any serious engagement with mindfulness. Mm. And therefore, we are called to, to more deeply know and um, act in response to our embeddedness in the world. Mm. And that necessarily includes all of the different ways that from this fallacy of the hard-bounded individual self, we create notions of certain other hard-bounded selves that are more valuable than others Mm -hmm. and, you know, distribute, create, you know, patterns and practices and institutions through which resources are distributed um, or maldistributed, right? Unevenly distributed, mm-hmm. including the resources simply to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And for me, the ethics of the practices of mindfulness are central uh, to what it is that this is all about. You know, so in a, in a nutshell, seeking to minimize harm, starting with myself, mm-hmm. but not only for myself you know, invites this, this inquiry. Okay, well then how might my own particular way of being in the world show me something about surplus suffering, Mm. um, suffering that's being, again, unevenly distributed in my time, um, that A, I might have some responsibility to help alleviate, right? And, or, and, and if I'm able to, 
to whatever degree I can do that, perhaps also there might be an opportunity to help others um, do that work of becoming more aware of this surplus suffering and becoming more aware of our potential ethical responsibilities Mm. with regard to that. Mm. So yeah, to me, this racial aspect of that is just one 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 aspect of many different ways we could be looking at identity-based harm, the harm that flows from all of the different ways that we embed these notions of meaning and value and purpose based on how we look, what is made in our time and place of our heritage, our lineage, um, our people, and their mm-hmm. value in culture. And so this is all very context specific, of course. And in the United States, we have, as I've alluded to, this history of um, a particular kind of racialized way of thinking about human value. And it goes very, 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 very deep Mm -hmm. Um, and um, really understanding how it might be showing up, how it might be getting in the way of some good we might be able to do in the world. Um, It's been a part of my own experience, frankly. And again, because I feel that mindfulness really is inviting us to start where we are, you know, to start with our own experience and to try to understand that just a little bit better (laughs) Uh, with humility, right? Because it's so easy to be in a trap of you know, our own creation about what we, what we think we know and who we think we are. And so to just wake up from that continuously is its own challenge. And, and for me, given my embodiments, it's invited me to reflect on, well, what is this thing called race that is often meeting mm-hmm. me in the world? Like, you know, as I walk through the world embodied in brown skin and with these features that are associated with blackness, but also um, in a you know, a cisgender female body. So the intersection of Mm -hmm. race and gender is very real in my own experience. You know, all of these factors and, you know, the access to economic opportunities that I've had a chance to experience in my own lifetime and the arc of that, you know, going from being basically in an impoverished community as a child to now Mm. having a certain amount of wealth and opportunity in the United States as a result of a lot of different things, um, my education and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is for me, this reflecting on not just what's happening, you know, the way in which my mind might be attaching or pushing things away or staying in a fog of unknowing, you know, the three poisons, but how that is reinforced and engaged by my social context. Mm-hmm. You know, what are the things to which I am drawn to attach or the things that I'm drawn and invited and maybe rewarded for pushing away? What does that reward system actually feel like in the body? Mm. Right. You know, all of those aspects of my lived experience are to me present and available for deeper understanding through mindfulness practice.
lot of what you were just saying around these ideas of Buddhist perspectives on attachment, you know, moving away from attachment and self as a as a construct and and the reality of ourselves being more fluid and and identity and all these things. Um, I'm wondering how you personally work with that in the context of the fight for social justice or racial justice or equity. It feels like um, it could be very easy to become attached to an outcome, you know, to a particular outcome or have that motivation, right? And and there's a lot in it that's about identity and how that shows up in mm-hmm. the world. So how do you play with those, the kind of the fluidity yeah. of that and the reality of that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Huh. Well, I mean, to me, you know, this question of what is equity and what is justice and you know, being open to deep inquiry around that and not getting stuck. You know, that's one of the teachings of the Buddha that stays Mm -hmm. with me. You know, how do you cross that flood of the river of our experiences by not getting stuck, right? Mm -hmm. So noticing the way in which I, I might be tempted to have a fixed notion of what equity looks like, what justice looks like, And knowing I will have my ideas about that, but then holding them a little bit more lightly if I can, which is, I think, one of the ultimate teachings of our practice in in how we move through the world. It's like, whatever it is that we're encountering, it it is this, you know, um, it's like this and it's what else is here. Right. So, so kind of being able then, and and this, I think is, it's very much about not just taking the traditional or the contemporary or the leading thinking about social justice and just overlaying it into Buddhism. (laughs) It's not that (laughs) for me anyway, it's about um, being an inquiry. Mm. with all of these things, right? So so what what is called for in terms of equity and justice and um, identity-based reckoning? And how do we continue to stay in that question with honor and respect and integrity and maybe some love and compassion and humility? You know, all of the different ways that we might put words around the way of mindfulness, you know, what it means to walk through the world with a kind of commitment to waking up. You know, one of the terms that comes up or one of the terms that's coming up for me right now is equanimity, Mm. which of course is identified in the teachings as, you know, one of the noble abodes that we might find ourselves inhabiting as a result of our mindfulness practices along with, um, you know, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, yeah, empathy, all of these loving kindness, these core ways that the practices orient ourselves to dealing with difficulty, right? That the practices support us in being oriented to move through the world where there will be suffering, (laughs) despite Mm -hmm. all our best intentions. And we're, you know, there might be suffering that we are causing in some sense, that our actions are responsible for in some sense. So being able to kind of both 
discern as best we can what kind of action we think might alleviate suffering. But to then, as we seek to deploy that or enact that or invite folks to embark on that, to recognize that um, we don't have the whole story, you know. Mm. And so <laughs> we, you know, we are going to be learning as we go. Um, and we will never have the whole story. We will never, you know, have the whole cloth to work with. So there's just some way in which, for me, the invitation is to have that courageous will to try to discern how we together might alleviate suffering and to try to take some action with those intentions, but then to be open to reading what has been the impact Mm. and beginning again, you know, to Mm. try again, maybe, all right. I tried that. It didn't work as well as I thought, or this policy is having this unintended consequence. Let us, you know, take that in, pause, see what we can learn from that and try again. So that, and that to me is kind of where that equanimity piece comes in. But it is, it's, it's, it's a different way of engaging in these practices aimed at making the world a little bit better place. It's certainly not the traditional way that the adversarial model that mm-hmm. I was raised up in, in law, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. I am sometimes responsible for teaching in law, um, was meant to help us, right, work with, which is why I was drawn to this sort of contemplative way of being in law, because I could see that the adversarial model, where there's always a winner and a loser, wasn't always working out so well for us as humankind. And not only that, but that the embedded in the adversarial model was this deep reinforcement of the idea of the isolated, atomized, hyper-individual with rights that you can't tread on and, you know, all of that, Mm. which is, you know, beautiful legacy of the Enlightenment period. I'm glad we got all of that straight and the notion of human rights is important. But today, real questions have emerged about um, some of the, again, unintended consequences of hyper-individuated notions of rights and responsibilities Mm. and how we do justice in light of all of that. Mm. And that's where the contemplative approach to law comes in. It's like wanting to understand and be in the space of the this and that of rights-based discourse. Because on the one hand, thank goodness we have this this discourse to be able to help us articulate frameworks for human rights and a floor below which we don't want to fall in terms of how we treat each other, how we treat immigrants, how we, all of that. And at the same time to be able to say, and there is this unintended consequence of alienation from our fellow human beings insofar as we have constructed this idea of this individual peck with a bundle of rights, so Mm -hmm. to speak, but doesn't really recognize the sort of porousness, the the way we enter our, to use the language of Thich Nhat Hanh, enter being space, the way in which um, the rights, individual rights discourse doesn't apprehend that second person dynamic of, you know, the we rights. The rights-based discourse 
doesn't apprehend that. It's very, very much right. about the individual, right? And that has an alienating effect on not just on us from each other, but on us from our full selves, including our spiritual self. And so that part, being in the place of like, woo, law does that, but it also does this other thing. Mm -hmm. That's where my work in contemplative law has has been. That that's fascinating. Um, I I hadn't heard that term of the adversarial model since I'm not trained in law, but mm -hmm. it's um, it makes a lot of sense, and I feel like it's really writ large in our society, probably yes, all the yes. time, but certainly it feels like right now it's like it's yes. either us or them and one wins and one exactly. loses and that's it. Right. It's a battle. These are wars, yeah. war, right? It's always exactly. The culture wars. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, do you have an example of how you're bringing contemplative approach into law to kind of push back against that individual atomization, as you were saying? Well... There are folks, I'm not certainly even one of the major exponents of this, but but I certainly am a fellow traveler of the restorative justice movement, mm -hmm. which is one of those ways that, you know, we in law who are trying to explore a different way have thought about some of these unintended or deleterious consequences of this adversarial model and hyper-individualized approach to the subject and object of law, frankly. You know, when we worry about that, some of us have seen a restorative justice approach, this approach that says it's not me versus you, but it's, it is about recognizing that, that me and you are part of a community. And injury that we tend to think of as some harm that I suffered as a result of something you did, this hyper-personalized approach, might also be seen as an injury to that whole. And of course, this is how mm. the criminal justice system has a little bit of this already embedded in, like, you know, this, the prosecutors representing the state, so to speak. Mm. But it's mm -hmm. still embedded in, right? It's the prosecutor taking on this one person and trying to hold this one person responsible for harm done to another on behalf of the state. But the restorative justice upends that by saying, really what we'd like to enact are places and spaces where we can respond to injury and injury, first of all, conceptualize it as an injury to that pre-existing whole community. And the goal then is not to punish and to hold this one individual accountable as much as it is to, well, acknowledge and hold the person accountable in a way that repairs the community. Mm-hmm. It keeps, you know, it keeps us coming back to thinking about our always being embedded in a network of relationships. And in a certain sense, I think implicit in that is this idea that we have interconnected degrees and relationships of responsibility um, such that this idea of hyper-individuated causation and, you know, fault Mm -hmm. need to be kind of massaged. Like we need to recognize that when harm happens, yes, there are individuals who might be responsible and individual agency is real and we need to take those kinds of responsibilities and, and act as agents in ways that make manifest that we can do and we can do better. And to recognize that the options that we have are often shaped formed, deformed by the context that we're in, 
by policies that we've contributed to consciously or not by the voting, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. So really, I think restorative justice approaches, generally speaking, and the philosophy behind them exemplify a way that folks are trying to move law or, you know, up in the kind of deep commitment and deep embeddedness in this adversarialness. Mm. And, and so restorative justice, other forms of alternative dispute resolution, whether it be mediation, there's, you know, approaches called understanding-based mediation, where you're, the goal is really to try to understand really what the harm felt like or was like for the various parties who feel aggrieved, and to try from that place of understanding to come up with, if not a totally win-win solution, a solution that minimizes and and perhaps obviates to some degree this idea that there's just one winner and one loser, Mm -hmm. but instead that we can together come up with a result that works better. And I can say from my own personal experience, I happen to have experienced like many, many people, a love relationship and a marriage that that didn't succeed Mm -hmm. um, uh, in my past. And I ended up going through a divorce that was structured in this way, which that we call um, collaborative divorce. Mm -hmm. And so even ending relationships, which um, that have been recognized by law through marriage and all these contractual and other responsibilities to end that and dissolve that in a way that again, doesn't make the other person the enemy, doesn't make it about how I can get the most out of that person before as a, you know, as a part of the divorce settlement, but instead is about trying to collaborate to end this relationship that didn't work, but in a way that recognizes you're still a respectful human being and, and I don't wish you ill. So, you know, so there's a movement toward conscious and collaborative divorcing. Mm. So there are ways that, you know, folks like me in law <laughs> have been trying from within to um, to make some change. So this is kind of making me think of your definition of racial justice. It seems related. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've defined it as love in action for the alleviation of racism and its harms against us all. And so, again, I feel like this speaks to that it's not an impact on just one individual. Um, It's absolutely a a collective experience. So can you say a little more about the harms um, that racism has caused against all parts of society. I feel like uh, for white folks, especially historically, I think it was probably pretty common to not see racism as a problem for white people because it it wasn't directly impacting them theoretically. So exactly. Yeah. Can you share more on that? Yeah. And I um, thank you for for raising this up. This is at the heart, really, of the insights that have been coming up for me as I've explored, you know, racism and injustice through this contemplative lens, it's interesting to me to see how other people, whether they speak to contemplation as the lens they use or not, are coming to similar mm-hmm. kind of conclusions. Heather McGee, for example, her book that's really right now in the United States, 
um, making quite a stir and getting people to think differently, perhaps about racial injustice. The book is called The Sum of Us. Mm -hmm. And the basic theme of that is what we're talking about here, which is racism actually injures all of us. And, um, you know, if we can understand that better, perhaps we might be able to live our way into more solidarity across these lines, what I call lines of real and perceived difference, right? Because there are a lot of the differences between us are more perceptual than real, but there are some real differences that need to be taken into consideration. But there are, I guess, you know, to get back to the core of your question, how exactly does racism harm us all? Again, I think that is something we should all just invite ourselves to think about. In the mm -hmm. United States, we should and might see so many ways that the, you know, recent rise in um, the appeals to racism and to white nationalism, mm -hmm. how that has been used successfully to divide uh, the population, to reinforce narratives of fear and grievance uh, based on this idea and ideology of race and racism that have gotten in the way of so many good things that we could have. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, again, part of how we think about like all of the good things that we as a society deserve, you name it, from healthcare, right, to a fairer tax system, um, to better education for all our children in all our communities, you know, at the public level that we're already paying for <laughs> through our taxes. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways that because we are very predisposed to think about my kids deserving a certain something that may be different from so-called your kids or their kids. There's mm -hmm. so many ways that we've embedded this, these narratives of the undeserving among us, mm. that it gets in the way of us doing right by each other and coming up with more effective policies. Um, so, you know, we've got um, a criminal justice system that's kind of run amok that um, makes actually any one of us more vulnerable to violence and to criminalization than any one of us should be in this great country at this time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's has very much been steeped in that deep history of dehumanizing racism. And we've all been coarsened because we've normalized dehumanizing racism in our culture. Mm -hmm. You can't not be affected by a culture, which in many, many ways suggests vast segments of the population by virtue of the way their bodies, you know, were colored at birth mm -hmm. kind of don't matter as much. And that is okay to pull the gun more quickly on these people and shoot these people or keep the knee on the neck of these people longer. It can't help but then make all of us, because we're all humans. And if you can see that done to one human being, it can be done to another. So the idea that race, whiteness and lightness, right, which is the hierarchy we deal with in the US, or whatever your um, identity-based privilege system, wherever you are, the idea that that social identity is will save you from all of the disadvantages that the other is suffering is largely myth 
but it's a powerful one. Mm-hmm. And I say it's largely myth because if you search, you will find, as I have done and found, examples of, for example, white men who have been suffocated by police, mm-hmm. right? Impoverished people of all backgrounds facing inadequate health care and um, economic ruin and climate distress of all backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But that narrative of racism makes it hard for us to make common cause and to address climate change, and to address healthcare for all, and to minimize weapons in our lifetime, right? In the vulnerability we are all facing in the United States to gun violence, right? Because we've got a narrative of there is that other that we all have to be afraid of, and so therefore we all need to cuss. So there are just countless ways, if we think about it, that racism really makes all of us more vulnerable, yet we have we are tempted to take the bait. And I say we, those who are privileged, those who are either white or have affinities to whiteness and are associated with whiteness, right? Because it's not only white people mm-hmm. who get privileges under this system of preferences for whites. It's mm-hmm. whites and those with affinities that make us in some sense, you know, available to be treated almost like whites. Hmm. So it's complicated. And that that is something we need to recognize as well. That gets underappreciated in the dominant narratives about racial justice and, and how to how to do racial equity. It's not as simple as, you know, white bodies are privileged and everybody else is, you know, disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think contemplation can help us understand and unpack how this is operating. And I think we need that extra level of spacious contemplation for these times because it's so much more complicated than is obvious. But if you just stop and realize you can, it's so obvious that those who are um, racially privileged in whatever way are tempted to take the bait of, you know, if I just don't make too many waves, my people will be okay. Which doesn't really ever protect us. Look at January 6th. Mm-hmm. You can't find, a, for example, in the United States, right? This is all U.S. centered. I, so mm-hmm. apologies to those who are not in the U.S. But on January 6th, we had a basically a race riot. The data is telling us mm-hmm. um, at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Many mm-hmm. of the people who were there were racially aggrieved and they were feeling that um, the, the studies are now showing us the complaint that unified more of the people there was not that they were impoverished. They were mostly middle class or upper class white racialized people living in communities that were suffering demographic changes and leaving folks feeling that they might be somehow displaced, Mm -hmm. right? And so that led to all of us being vulnerable to our capital being overrun. Mm -hmm. And that led to our vice president, Mr. Pence at the time, vice president at the time, who could hardly, if I may say, be whiter being vulnerable to being lynched, right? Yeah. So it really, um, it's a false support. These ideas of identity-based privilege in a context which is privileging some and not others. It's certainly, if you look at how it's playing out in the United States, and I would suggest and invite those who are in other contexts and cultures to, to look at this because the sociologists, and I studied sociology before going to law school, you know, part of my work leans into the sociological insight 
that wherever we are around the globe, these tendencies to identify bodies and rank order them by it put mm. them in different put us in different groups and rank order mm-hmm. is pervasive certainly we do it around age and gender almost across all societies mm-hmm. what we make of you know different ages old and young who's who's privileged and who isn't um what we make of the gender difference who's privileged and who isn't may vary a little but again we do this identity based hierarchies of value, you know, making of hierarchies of value across societies. And then there's often an open set. In the U.S., it's race. We've created this thing called race. And it's not only in the U.S., but other places it may be more associated with immigration status, or it may be more associated with religion, or it may be Mm -hmm. more associated with um, any any, number of different ways that each culture comes up with those markers of value. Mm -hmm. And so the question really for any of us, wherever we are, is to really wake up to some of the the kind of false consciousness that's created by these Mm. deeply embedded, deeply trained in us hierarchies of values based on the, you know, the the bodies that we're in. Mm -hmm. And to see if we if we're willing to see it, we can see we're we're getting quite a teaching on that in the culture of the United States right now. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a teaching that's out there for all of us to see if we're willing to see mm. the harm and the vulnerability that we're all now facing. We're all more afraid. This entire country could be more de- is more destabilized. We could all be, you know, victim of a new civil war mm-hmm. because of the rise in the rhetoric around, you know, the threat to, to the white majority, which if you look at the data, you'll see that whites continue to be fairly comfortable here, predominating on all levels, mm-hmm. income, wealth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a yeah. false consciousness. And yet yeah. it's just really, really real in its consequences. And that's what we're up against. Yeah. I wonder if you could share, some of this was woven into what you just were um, describing, but I know you've done a lot of focus on embodied mindfulness and really working with the body, um, also around racial trauma. Could you share your perspective on the role of the body and how this all shows up and the importance of working with the body? Yeah, and I'd invite you to reflect on this with me, if you're willing, my dear. Yeah, yeah. just, you know, um, these things that we're talking about, ideas of race and deeply embedded notions, because of the fact that we are these soft biological beings, how they impact us is again not only just you know cognitive or social in a certain sense only to show up in in the way in which we interact with each other but if we're willing to 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 reflect on it we will see that um these imprints these stories these ideas of who whom to fear like who we can fear who's who around whom we're safe they impact us, right? We, in certain neighborhoods, we might feel ourselves ha, relaxing because we have the sense that we're around people who are more like us. Or in certain other neighborhoods, we feel a little bit more like maybe we should be looking over our shoulder because it happens to be, you know, populated by more a different kind of diversity. And again, the inquiry piece is let's look into our own experience. What do we know in our own bodies about this? 
Mm-hmm. What do we know in our own bodies about what happens when somebody from a background that through some way, obvious or not obvious, we've been trained to fear. It could be someone wearing a burqa, right? Which in the United States right now, we've there have been these in the last, you know, since 9-11, if not before, certainly, we've gradually increased the way in which we have been trained or to think about um, folks from the Middle East through narratives of fear and potential terrorism and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So much so, right, that now when folks encounter folks who are covered in some way, whether they're wearing a hijab or a, a, a kind of a more full expression of that choice, uh, that religious expression, often in our bodies, if we are willing to acknowledge it, some reactivity, some you know, sensitivity, some quickening of breath, so being open to acknowledging, noticing, and naming, oh, that, oh, this is what this feels like. This is what bias embedded in the body feels like. And to try and recognize that without, with as little shame as possible, because, you know, often these lessons we have about, you know, against whom we should direct our fear and all of that, we didn't invite these lessons, right? We haven't invited right. these trainings. They have just been served up to us yeah. often, right? Constantly, very subtly in movies mm-hmm. and this and that. So if we can, you know, create places and spaces where we can acknowledge these things, put the shame aside for long enough to say, this is in me too. Um, that can be, I think, a first step to doing what we can to disrupt the potential for those, you know, embodied trainings to shape how we are with each other. And I say this, I'm pausing as I say this, because I just want to underscore, I really, the data seem to show this is much, much harder than is advertised. It's really not right. It is really not that easy to go to our workshop or take on, you know, (laughs) implicit bias test Mm -hmm. and be over this. Right. It's really hard because it's really in the body. Right. And you don't disrupt that or disengage that simply by intending to do it. Yeah. A lot of data has shown that. Right. Yeah. It feels like a lot of it is about. Yeah. Like you said, being able to recognize those embodied states of fear that we've all been conditioned Mm -hmm. to feel and then working really intentionally to create senses of safety and communities where yes safety can be felt in the body right exactly and then start to unpattern that yeah right and that's a practice so yes i thank you for naming that that it's creating places where you can feel that safety in the body yes particular practices i in my own experience and i hope that's been so for folks with whom i've worked it seems to have been so for at least some of them There are ways that we can practice together that can give us that sense of um, dysregulated, downregulation when we're feeling ourselves, feeling that anxiety, that fear. And because so much of what gives the power to racism in other forms of othering, identity-based othering, is some often underappreciated, underacknowledged, you know, manipulation of fear, Mm -hmm. 
right? So much of it is traveling along fear that if we can really invite and explore practices for meeting fear and anxiety and explicitly looking at racialized fear and racialized narratives that are meant to make us feel afraid and anxious, because that's really, I think, at the heart of what we're up against right now Mm. and what we need to really be courageously responding to. Because as we don't, right here, right now, as we sit here, folks are constantly, right, using the beautiful technologies and the, you know, the technology we're using right now to connect is being used by others with a very different intention to divide, to Mm -hmm. reinforce fear. And it's so effective, Wendy, that whereas some years ago, it used to be, you know, you had to be willing to go off somewhere into the forest and put on an outfit and do this and that. Now you can literally just be sitting right with your loved ones and being radicalized by sitting on your device. And it is happening. It is disrupting all of our neighborhoods, even right here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There has been a clear rise in which, you know, the feeling of some of us in this community are afraid of others in this community. And nothing really has changed except the way in which we're getting fed these messages of fear. So it is real. Yeah. The other thing around that space of embodied experience in this area of of race um, that you were speaking to earlier is this coarsening, I think is the word you used about like how we kind of get hardened um, Mm -hmm. by being exposed to this. Yes. And I think that's something for me that uh, particularly this year, as I've dug in a lot more to a lot of this work after George Floyd um, and just, you know, I thought that I... I thought I was an open, compassionate person that was able to feel and sense, you know, the suffering of other people and injustices and just realizing how much um, I have been cut off from my body and these experiences of pain and especially like my own complicity and the just understanding and knowledge and taking in of the information around the suffering and oppression and injustices that are happening. I think um, that's also, at least speaking personally, been a real um, eye-opener about how much that is a part of whiteness. And, you know, going mm-hmm. way back into European lineage, you know, for a lot of a lot of reasons. Yes. Um, but I think that's yes. also has a major role to play in why white people haven't been able to see this or or take this in in certain ways Mm -hmm. so I hope that that is Mm -hmm. shifting now it feels it feels like there's a different level of awareness um, at least in some communities these days but I don't know what what you think about that yeah I thank you for naming that and bringing us back to that Um, because that coarsening that numbing that spacing out that it's not my problem um is a big part of, and, and again, I I sometimes use the phrase dominator culture because I think it's not only whiteness. Mm-hmm. 
that does that. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we're talking about race, so we're wanting to look at what whiteness does. But again, remembering that not only white bodies get trained in whiteness, right? Okay, it's really these patterns of domination that are the success culture of our time and place. And um, those of us who learn those patterns can be of many different types of bodies, frankly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know. Feeling like a winner in a dominator culture. I mean, the question is, what does that actually feel like? One aspect of that, at least in my own experience, I think, is this this invitation to not be vulnerable, to ever Mm -hmm. be vulnerable. Vulnerability is for somebody else. Mm -hmm. If I am succeeding and if I am, you know, winning on the terms of this culture, then I don't have to feel and it's, we're getting the hyper lesson on this right now, because even as you mentioned, on the one hand, in this post George Floyd killing reckoning era, we're looking at the way that whiteness is a real feature of this numbing, this distancing, this color coarsening of our hearts to each other's suffering. At the same time, in the same era, we've been witnessing the other training, which is never apologize. Mm-hmm. You know, never, you know, admit that you're responsible or might be a part of anybody else's problem right. or even your own. I mean, even right. 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 So that's our that's to me what is so poignant about this time is that we are we're immersed in, in, a, in a real battle for almost our souls. Right. And this is more than just some political narrative about what's going on. We really are. I mean, because. Mm. On the one hand, to the degree we want to feel more and empathize and have compassion, uh, there is a ready narrative over here that, you know, that is what we should be defending against. How dare somebody make us feel anything? I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is part of what the, the those who are using this, what I think is an awful term, social justice porn is mm. about, right? There's this, this, this way in which people recognize that we could care for each other more if we're willing to pause and reflect and open our hearts. And there's a resistance to that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I, but I do think that this contemplative inquiry around racial justice, if we're willing to engage it. So I always invite, you know, starting with where are we? How open are we to this? Notice the defendedness against being present to other people's suffering and, you know, the different ways that we navigate that inquiry. Like, okay, I'll be present to this kind of suffering if you're grieving or if you're sick, but I don't want to hear about your racial suffering. Mm -hmm. I'll be present to some climate related distress, but don't talk to me about intersectionality of race sexism and heteronormativity or whatever, right? Trans. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear that, you know? So I think just really seeing if we can open up to, if we're willing to engage in this, how willing are we? And to ask that question again and again and again, because in my experience, the walls can come up again, very subtly, depending on, again, because we're constantly being retrained or re-invited, re-immersed 
in these narratives of dominator culture. Right. So it's hard. It's hard. I mean, and, and I think part of it is about, you know, subtle ways that we've gotten comfortable with the way of accumulation and um, patterns of exploitation mm -hmm. that are associated with racial capitalism, we might call it, and some people mm. do call it out there. Can you say more about that term? Yeah, so racial capitalism is meant to help us understand that, or just to be curious about the way that race and racism has been such an important aspect of the development of, of accumulationist capitalism, like mm. really, you know, wealth building capitalism from the days before slavery and enslavement, even going back, as you were saying, to days in, in Europe, you mm. know, where do these notions of the Jewish character or, you know, all of these different ways that even amongst your know, white racialized ethnics in Europe, um, in some measure, stories about each other have traveled with invitations to do business or not, or on what terms. And so this idea that once we embed notions of differential hierarchy and worth wherever we are, and then we overlay it with a market, mm -hmm. that's a powerful, powerful combination. Yeah. And many, many fortunes have turned on that. And part of it is, you know, here today in the United States, it's still possible to make money off of racism and to make political hay out of it, which mm -hmm. is associated with making money in this country. Mm -hmm. And so it really is an ethical question. To me, we, we are called to, to choose very clearly if we're going to live with a capitalist system, which is um, less regulated around some of these things, and it could be, then we have to self-regulate. We mm -hmm. have to be more aware of the way that racism might be one of the reasons why I might be getting a higher salary or he or she might be getting a higher salary than this other person, mm -hmm. you know, um, sexism, all of these things. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we willing to do and what kind of, you know, way are we willing to maybe give up some of the benefits, the unearned or unethically, you know, unjustifiable benefits that yeah. flow from right racial capitalism. Yeah. Am I willing to sort of say, I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. Or I want to disrupt that in these systematic ways. Um, and the ways to do that are not necessarily obvious or easy. And they require us constantly tinkering with policy, maybe because I'm not speaking here about any revolution. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It is about just saying, how do we want to live? How do we want to live more ethically? How do we want to, as best we can, disrupt some of the ways that unearned racial privilege is running through the markets that are determining the value of our homes, the value of our educations, the value of our, you know, on and on and on. And it's a lot to try to turn toward, but it starts with waking up in the ways that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. just noticing yeah. How is it in me? And how might I need to keep some part of my um, commitment to studying and learning devoted to these things that I might not be being paid to study, how racism is showing up in contemporary society. But if I 
am concerned about inequity and injustice and, and racism. And if we're not concerned about it right now, I feel that we are missing an opportunity, a real opportunity of this time. Because I feel mm-hmm. it just feels like we are called to really wake up to the legacies of racism today. Um, but it's a very individual call. And you and I both know we can, many of us, get by without doing this work. Yeah. 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 And this is, you know, some of us have to do the work and we'll do it. And so here we are at least creating the space for all of us to think about what's our personal commitment to doing our work and staying engaged, even though we know we'll be tempted to, maybe rewarded for turning away from this work. And even though it'll be hard and it'll feel like we're not making progress, you know, and I say all of this with so much humility, I know that it's possible that this is bigger than us that the systems are so well-oiled and, you know, they're going to keep on percolating along that Mm -hmm. no matter how hard we try, you know, our children's children, that generation, I don't actually have children. People ask me this question, but I worry about our children, you know? Yeah. Yeah. These generations to come, will they still be worrying about these issues? I really wish that we could predict that that wouldn't be so, but if history be any guide, It's really, really hard for us to upend this. And this is why. It's because it's so persistent that we have to do what we can. to unpack a term that you use called color insight. Um, and I think you use it kind of juxtaposed to the idea of color blindness, which I think for many decades was kind of the idea or, or the goal that, you know, you just don't see color. We don't really talk about it. And then it'll, those issues will go away. Yes. So, which is clearly not, not happened. Um, so could you describe uh, color insight, what you mean by that, and kind of the difference and the problems with colorblindness? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you've alluded a little bit to the problems with the, the with colorblindness. I would say, you know, coming probably from a well-intended place in the wake of the reckoning with um, racism that we describe by the label the civil rights movement of the 1960s, roughly in mm-hmm. 70s a bit. Um, in, in the wake of all of that, uh, especially in the United States, many people believe that the best way to, you know, get beyond race would be to just not, you know, if the problem before was that we took race into consideration and we were organizing our lives and segregating the world in racist ways then the solution must be to not take race into consideration. And then however we organize our lives, it, you know, it won't be because of our racism. Right. Right. So I think, again, I understand at least some of the ways that it uh, for many was founded on good intentions. Mm -hmm. And the problem of course, is that even when we intend not to take race into consideration, 
owing to all the things that we've been talking about, the way that right. race is already baked in to so much, the way that we are being trained and re sort of reinforced in narratives around who matters and who doesn't constantly in our culture in subtle and obvious and non-obvious ways in, you know, stereotypes in the, the movies, in the particular way our local news talks about racialized bodies and crime. There are just constant, constant feeders to this idea that race matters. And this is also often under the umbrella of implicit bias, what you're describing, right? And how that gets set up in our minds. Exactly right. And so, yeah, under that umbrella, the cognitive psychologists, social psychologists mm-hmm. tell us the brain is doing bias because bias works in a certain sense. We are creating, other, other words, these schemas for categorizing reality in the world around us. And we have schemas for different types of bodies because that has mattered in our social world. We can't not have them. We, you know, we, we're sort of, again, as I've alluded to before, being reinforced and rewarded and punished in obvious and non-obvious ways, forgetting it, like getting who matters and who doesn't. And so we do that even when we don't intend to, like we're, again, implicitly biased, mm-hmm. even when we're not intending to be, or, and so this, the research seems to confirm. And so given the reality of race mattering, um, this failure to be able to acknowledge that and to talk about it and to try to figure out how to actually minimize its operation, which has been a consequence of colorblindness, right? Colorblindness has said, all of that is a problem. So we just can't talk about it. Therefore, we can't talk about when it is showing up. When mm-hmm. we are being biased, if you do, you're the problem. Mm-hmm. So many of us looking at the data on that, the data that reveal that even those who intend and say they're not biased act in ways that reflect bias um, through ver- various measures and research findings that's been replicated again and again and again. That called forth that plus our own lived experience, right? I've We've all witnessed folks saying, I'm not biased and have doing things that seem to reflect it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, my own awareness practices have invited me to really look at how we might turn toward rather than away from racial information and um, the indications that something racial is happening and develop more capacity to understand that, develop that capacity that we all have to to know more about the dynamics of race in our own life, bodies, experiences, communities, relationships. And um, from that place of having that courageous will to engage and will to know, then develop that ability to work across our different experiences, you Mm. know, mine and my body, Mm -hmm. yours and yours, but working together, having some interpersonal commitment around this, because so much of the data show we need each other to really see, you know, the places where we can't see around all of this. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the fourth piece for me is from that place of, you know, strengthening our will to see, to know, to interact in ways that unpack even more. And then from all of that, to really engage in whatever efforts we might 
engage in together to change the world, to minimize the likelihood that, you know, next year's folks who interact, the next year's interactions that you and I have will be, you know, filled with just the same content. Maybe there'll be mm. new content around race mm-hmm. and racism because it, right, it keeps coming. But at least we'll be really working with it and deepening our ability. And that to me is what I'm, you know, I'm just pointing toward things like that when I use the word color insight because it's yeah. just a term. Yeah, thank you. Well, as we wrap up, I'm wondering um, whether you have any kind of stepping back from all of your work and experiences, any big picture take homes for our listeners um, from your perspective? Well, I think that the only one other thing I would just say, because I don't think we've talked about it enough, is how much in my own experience, you know, we've kind of been sold this bill of goods that suggests that somehow we're we're protected by staying in our own lane mm-hmm. and with our own kind. And it can seem risky to do this work of trying to get to know each other across race and, and trying to up in racism together. And we've all been hurt and wounded. We've tried something, it's been misinterpreted. We've decided maybe it's not worth the effort. Mm-hmm. To me, there's like a lot of joy and a lot of like actual human loving, you know, experience that we're missing. And Mm. that's why, that's my why really, you know, I'm not pretending I'm in this from some like, you know, deep ethical moral ground that isn't also about, you know, a kind of desire for more joy in my life. And I just happen to know that human beings are fortunate. We can connect, we can um, care about each other, we can learn from each other, no matter our background, if we're open to it. And so I, I just sort of feel like we've all suffered enough, actually. And at this point, it seems we, most of us, if we're fortunate enough to be able to be reflecting together in this way, probably have much more ability to kind of let go some of the ways we've held to what we need and what it means for us to be safe, respected, and um, comfortable. And open up to a little bit of maybe comfort with discomfort or willingness to sort of you know, be present to the other realities out there the Mm -hmm. experiences of people who don't look like us. And from that to grow and to help enact, like help live our way into whatever wants to be born, because I'm convinced there's some new way of being human that is wanting to be born in this post coronavirus. If we ever get there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) period, Mm -hmm. like there is just, it seems to me we've, become radically reawakened to our interconnectedness across the globe um, and our, you know, and our vulnerability. And we can be tempted in the face of that to withdraw and to go into places of fear and anxiety and anger. But there's another way. And that other way, I think, is something that 
we're right on the cusp of mm. actually finding our way into. And if we just have the courage and if we can just be open to experimenting with being together in this different way, we will know from the experience that it's worth it. And that all of the fear and the anger, anxiety and all of that, you know, was just a kind of a, a barrier mm. to what our experience in the world right now is wanting us to really be able to, to appreciate about life itself. May it be so. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. This has been really so nourishing and rich, um, and you've been really generous with your time. So I want to thank you very much and for all the work that you're doing in the world. This is such important work, and uh, thanks for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There, you can also support our work, including this podcast. Mm -hmm.